Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are absolutely humbled by the fact that we have the incredible privilege of knowing you and being known by you. It amazes us that we not only get to know you through general revelation, that is through what you have created, um, the world around us, the skies, the trees, Lord, all of them singing your glory and honor and praise. But Father, we also get to know you through means of special revelation, through the means of your word by which we get to know you in a more intimate and personal way. And so, Father, we pray that you would now come and your spirit would attend the preaching of the word. Father, we acknowledge that neither the preacher nor the hearers of the word can have any effect unless your spirit comes and inclines our hearts to you so that we would bend our ears to hear your word, to listen intently so that your spirit would come and change us. Show us who you are, we pray. Remove the scales from our eyes and from our hardened hearts. Soften them again. Give us a heart of flesh. Break us down and then build us up again, we pray. Search our hearts and know us and see if there be any anxious way in us. And then show us how glorious you are, how glorious your gospel is the edification of your saints, the evangelization of the nations, and ultimately, Father, 
for the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in your name that we ask it. Amen. Well, as a pastor here at Sovereign Grace, one of the the many privileges that I have is to be able to counsel uh, various members of our body here at Sovereign Grace. That's one of the privileges of a pastor. People pursue you because they think you actually have something worth saying. And by God's grace, because we have the word, I think we actually do have something worth um, saying. But when I use that word counseling, don't become afraid of it. When I say counseling, I don't mean the worldly understanding of counseling. All I mean by that is biblical intent intensified discipleship. That's all I mean by counseling. But I absolutely love to do it. But often what will happen when I'm sitting down and counseling someone is they'll come to me after a few weeks and they'll be like, Jason, I, I am struggling with this particular sin and I'm memorizing scripture and I'm diligently praying to the Lord and we've got these disciplines set up and I don't understand why I can't seem to overcome this sin. We're making progress, but it's slow and I don't know why I can't overcome it. And I'll oftentimes look at them and say, well, it's, it's probably the same reason why I can't overcome all of my sins. It's because I don't fear the Lord as I should. Now, because we don't often talk about the fear of the Lord in the American church, um, we like to talk more about the love of God, they'll often look at me pretty weird and, and say, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And I'll say, well, if I feared the Lord more, then I would hate sin and I wouldn't be drawn to sin anymore. What does Proverbs 8.13 say? It says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. In other words, if I fear the Lord, then I'm going to hate evil. And, I'm, and on the flip side, I'm going to obey the Lord because I hate evil. But if I don't fear the Lord, then I'm not going to obey him. And instead, I'm going to embrace evil. You see, our sin has everything to do with who or what we fear because our fear has everything to do with what we love. For example, let me flush this out for you. If you, for example, love comfort and ease, you will fear everyone and everything that can make your life uncomfortable or difficult. So if someone in your family is blatantly, unrepentantly sinning, and in so doing, hurting themselves and the loved ones around you, you most likely won't confront them. Now, why won't you confront them? Because you love them so much and you're you're exercising all of this patience towards them and endurance? No, that's not why. You won't do it because you love your comfort and ease more than you love them. Loving them in this case would be uncomfortable and difficult so you don't do it. Now, there's nothing wrong with liking comfort and ease, is there? They're good things. The problem is when we're willing to sin to get it, it's reached idle status. When we're willing to disobey God to get comfort and ease, it's become too important in our lives and it's become an idol. You see, if you loved your relationship with God more than comfort, then you would have confronted your family member for their own good because you love God and you love them. And if that confrontation would have brought about discomfort and difficulty, then you would receive it from the hands of your loving Heavenly Father. Why? Because you know He's using it in your life, as painful as it is, to draw you closer to Himself. And what you love and desire more than anything else is your relationship with Him. But you see, instead, you love your comfort and ease more than you love God. And so you fear losing your comfort, and so you look to yourself to protect it. 
And don't you see, in so doing, you've exchanged the fear of the Lord for the fear of man. You don't fear disappointing your loving Heavenly Father. You fear disappointing your family member because they can jeopardize your comfort and ease. You see how this works? Now, some of you may not be able to relate to this because your idol may not be comfort or ease, but I want you to know that we all have idols in our lives. So let me ask you, what's yours? Maybe it's power, constantly seeking for power, or approval from other people, or control over people and situations, or other people needing you. Or maybe it's the flip side, it's your independence. It's nobody needing, uh, you not needing anyone at all. Or perhaps it's security through someone protecting you or through um, financial gain or material or possessions. Or maybe it's your work or achievement or religion or your race or culture or your family or your image. You see, the reality is that we all have idols in our lives. And whoever or whatever we think can give us access to those idols becomes the person or thing that we fear instead of God. And I pray that you realize, I've been praying for myself and for you all week long, that we would realize that serving these idols is the way of death. It's the way of death. Though they promise to make us happy, in reality, they kill us, they destroy us, and they devour us. And what's even worse is that they seek to take the place of Almighty God himself. But you see, God, on the other hand, in his word, tells us that the fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It's a life-giving fountain. And what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to do is to drink deeply from that fountain. And because that's true, he wants to instruct us in the fear of the Lord. And that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning, the fear of the Lord. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to answer three questions for us this morning about the, the fear of the Lord. First, why we should fear the Lord. Secondly, why we don't fear the Lord. And thirdly, how we arrive at the fear of the Lord. So why we should fear the Lord. Second, why we don't fear the Lord. And third, how we arrive at the fear of the Lord. So first, let's look at why we should fear the Lord. Why we should fear the Lord. Look at verses 1 through 8 with me. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you have actually heard this passage preached before? Raise your hands. Okay, well, not, not very many. Okay, now, on the, how many of you have heard the 1960s song by the birds called Turn, Turn, Turn? Raise your hands. 
See, more people have heard the song. I knew it. Well, I have had that song stuck in my head all week long as I prepared for this sermon. So I'm super excited to preach it just to get that song out of my head. That's down on the list of priorities, but it's one of them. Trust me. Um, Well, then you know that uh, typically when we come to this passage, it's popularly approached as an exhortation. That is, when we come to this passage, our tendency is to see it as primarily telling us that there are certain times for us to do this and certain times for us to do that. And so typically, when you hear this passage preached, what you get is instructions about when it's a good time to do certain things. And so the sermon ends up being completely man-focused and all about us. And you see this, actually, even in the last few lines of the song by the birds. They took some artistic license, and they changed the ending, and they say, a time for love, a time for hate, a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. Now, what are they saying by that? What what they're trying to tell us is that there is a time for peace, and it's up to us to make that time now. We can make it happen. That's what they're telling us. That's the inference from that song. Now, while it's true that there are certain times for us to do certain things, I want you to hear this. That is not the point of this passage. That's not the point of this text. This text is not primarily about us. It's primarily about God and His sovereign rule over all of the times of our lives. It's all about the sovereignty of God. And we know this Because the preacher tells us in verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. And I love the way one of the commentators that I read this past week summarized the preacher's point. And I'm going to quote it for you directly. He says, even though humanity is the grammatical subject of the various infinitives, People plant and pluck up, mourn and dance. The human subject is by no means the determiner of such events. The preacher makes clear that God alone is the one who determines. God is the primary, albeit implicit, actor on the temporal scene. The ever-constant swing of of time's pendulum are suspended and held firmly by God. And that's what the preacher wants us to see. He wants us to see that time is in God's hands, not ours. So if the sermon goes a little long this morning, know that it's not my fault, it's in God's hands. No, that's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. And you can almost sense this in how the poem reads. It's as if you can hear the ticking of the clock as you read it. And guess what? The clock is ticking completely independent of your wishes or my desires. And you know what? We should feel that. We should feel that when we read this text because the reality is that God is sovereign over all the times of our lives. Now, just to prove this point even further, the preacher intentionally structures this entire poem to communicate that message to us. And without getting too technical, there's a whole lot of um, Hebrew poetry stuff going on here. We don't want to spend time on that. But the biggest way he communicates this to us is by having seven lines in the poem. They're, they're put in pairs, and there's seven of them. Fourteen total individual lines, but when you pair them together, there's seven. Now, if you know anything about how the Bible uses numbers, what does the number seven symbolize in the Bible? Completeness or wholeness, Right? 
And so what he's doing by using the number seven, having seven lines in this poem, he's telling us that God is sovereign over the whole of our lives, even the things he doesn't mention. Because he doesn't give us an exhaustive list here, as long as it is. But he doesn't have to give us an exhaustive list. Because by having seven lines, he's telling us that nothing falls outside of God's sovereignty. So, now that we understand what the poem is actually about, and hopefully we've cleared up some cultural misunderstandings, let's look at the poem itself and explain the first few times that the preacher mentions. And just so you know, as a disclaimer, I'm not going to look at each one of the individual times. We're not going to do that because we could spend the whole sermon doing that. We're going to look at enough of them to drive the point home, and then we're going to move on. So, first, the preacher mentions that there is a time to be born and a time to die. So let me ask you, before you were born, did anybody come up to you and say, hey, is it okay if you're born today? Is it okay if you come into this world? Are you you cool with that? We want to have your permission before that happens. Did that happen for any of you guys? Didn't, right? You were just born. You don't even remember the day of your birth. It just happens. And let me ask you another question. Is anybody asking you about the day of your death? Is anybody coming up to you and saying, hey, what day would you like to die? First of all, that would be a little creepy if someone was doing that. And if if someone is doing that to you, you should probably call the police and let, let them know what's going on. But no one's asking you that, right? And it's not up to you because if it was up to you, you would never want to die, would you? You wouldn't want to die. You'd want to live forever. So then let me ask you another question. Who chose the day that you'd be born? And who chose the day that you're going to die? The Bible answers that question for us. Psalm 139, 16 tells us, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God is the one who chooses the day of our birth, and God is the one who, cho- who chooses the day of our death. Not us. God chooses it. Not you. Not me. Next, the preacher mentions that there is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. And if you have a garden, or you plant things, or you're a farmer, or whatever, you understand the point of this, right? You don't get to plant the trees and the plants and the flowers and the bushes whenever you want to, do you? Why is that? Because there are certain seasons for certain plants and trees and bushes and flowers. And so you you can plant them whenever you want, but it's not going to work out for you. Why is that? Who, Who determines the seasons? Who set all of that up? Again, the Bible answers that question for us. In Genesis 8, 22, right after God flooded the whole earth, he promises, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. We call this the Noahic Covenant. God made it with all people for all times. He's not going to stop the seasons from going. But guess what? He's in control of them, not us. Not us. Next, the preacher mentions that there is a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, despite what some people think, there actually is an appropriate time to kill. For example, when administering... The death penalty, that's an appropriate time to kill. If you are in in self-defense and to defend yourself, not that your intent was to kill the person, but you kill them, that's an appropriate time to kill. If we're in a just war, that's an appropriate time to kill. But guess what? There's also a time to heal, isn't there? A time to give life. 
as well. That's, that's more normative. But guess what? We don't dictate these times, do we? Who does? God does. All throughout the Bible, we see these calamities, these wars that are brought upon Israel and time and time, persecution in the early church. And time and time again, what does the Bible tell us? Who's sovereign over it? God is, not us. Next, the preacher mentions that there is a time to break down and a time to build up. Now, just think about your houses. Think about various buildings that you own. Do you build them thinking, all right, on January 20th, 2020, this building is going to start to fall apart and break down and fall. And that's, that's what, that's, we're building it, knowing that it's going to happen then. No, we build buildings to last, don't we? And we have no idea when they're going to start to fall apart or when we're going to have to replace them. You see, we're not, we're not in control of that. We're not sovereign over that. And then once they, they come down, what do we have to do? We have to build another one in its place. When the population gets too high, are we in control of that? No, we're not. Who is? God is. Next, the preacher mentions that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, you don't need to think beyond your own life to see how this is true. Let me ask you, what usually leads you to weep? What makes you weep? Hardships, failures, strife, sickness, uh, so on and so forth. All the things that make you weep. Now, if it was up to you, would you ever choose to experience those things in your life? No, you wouldn't, would you? We don't like those things, so we don't, we don't choose them. God is the one who's in control of those things. How about the times that lead you to laughter? Now, we'd love to have these times last forever, wouldn't we? But let's be honest, we can't just make ourselves last, laugh hysterically. And those of you who can, you probably have some issues, right? But when it actually happens, if you had this happen, you start to laugh hysterically, and it's so funny, it catches you off guard that you laugh even harder. Why is that? Because we're not in control of those times. God is the one who's in control of those times. How about the times that lead you to mourn? Now, usually when we mourn, it's because of a huge, significant loss in our life, isn't it? Someone makes some decisions that we don't like, or, or most popularly, probably, somebody that we know and are, are close to dies. And it's a time to mourn. But again, do we choose those times? We don't. We don't like those times, so we don't pursue those times. We, if we had our choice, we wouldn't bring them into our own lives. Who does? God does. And lastly, how about the times that lead you to dance? Now, this just may be me, but there are literally times when I'm so excited that I have to hold back the, the urge to, to dance. And a lot of you should be thankful for that because I can't dance at all. I've got two left feet. But see, we're not in control of those times when we experience incredible bliss, are we? We can't control those times. We can't just bring them into our lives whenever we want. Who does? God does. And that's what the preacher wants us to see again and again and again. We are not in control of these times. God is. Next, the preacher mentions that there is a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. Now, there's some really weird interpretations on this, and I'm not going to go into them, but they're, they're pretty crazy. The one that I think I adhere to is that this is a historical reference to a military tactic. If you were going to go to, to battle with one of your enemies, the best way to weaken them is to cut off their food supply. And so the way that they would do this back then is they would take a whole bunch of these huge stones and they'd throw them on the enemy's field. 
Now, if you, you know anything about farming, you can't grow crops if there's a bunch of rocks covering the soil. The plants can't, can't get up. You can't till the ground. You can't do all of the things that you need to do to get the soil ready for the seeds. And so then, after you conquered your enemy and their fields were now your possession, then guess what? You'd have to gather the stones and take them away. So now you can plant your crops there. So again, this is a reference to war. And we've already seen that who's in control of that? God is. God is the one who's sovereign over when it's the time for war and when it's not. Next, the preacher mentions that there is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I'm learning this as a newly married person. I don't just get to hold my wife all the time, do I? If I did that all day long, I probably wouldn't get much accomplished and neither would she. So there's a time for us to embrace and there's a time for us to not embrace. But who dictates those times? God does, not us. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to explain the rest of the times that the preacher mentions. And frankly, we don't have to look at the rest of them, do we? The point is abundantly clear. The point is that God is sovereign over all the times of our lives. His absolute control extends to every time of our lives. And you see, because God is sovereign over all the times of our lives, that's why we should fear him. We should fear this God who is in control of all things. Because guess what? We're not ultimately in control of our lives. We're at his mercy. And we hear him say that elsewhere in the Bible, doesn't he? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. He's in control here. So the preacher's exhortation to us is to stop fearing whatever or whoever it is that we fear. And instead to replace that idolatrous fear with the fear of the Lord, the God who is sovereign over all things. Because the reality is, think about this, that God is sovereign over whoever or whatever you fear. God is the one who's in control over them or that situation. So first of all, we've seen that the reason we should fear the Lord is because he's sovereign over all the times of our lives. He's sovereign over all the times of our lives. Secondly, Let's look at why we don't fear the Lord. Why we don't fear the Lord. Look at verses 9 through 10, and then the second half of 11 with me. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then jump to the second half of verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, right after the poem, the first thing the preacher does is he points us back to the passage that we looked at last week. And the reason that he does that is because he wants us to remember that life lived apart from God, intentionally lived apart from God, profits us absolutely nothing. And what he's saying in verses 9 through 10 here is that that's the business that God has given us to be busy with if we choose to live life apart from him. We're busy with a life that profits us nothing. That's what God gives us. And by the way, that's exactly the point of the poem in verses 1 through 8. Think about it. As nice as our birth is, it's canceled out by the day of our death, isn't it? So what do we gain? Nothing. They cancel each other out. And as nice as it is to plant things, our plucking them up cancels it out, doesn't it? So what's the gain? Nothing. They cancel each other out. And as nice as it is to heal someone, their inevitable death cancels it out. So what's the gain? 
nothing. Absolutely nothing. And you see what he's doing? He's showing us the futility of our lives and the fact that God is the one who's sovereign over it. And then the preacher goes on to say, in the second half of verse 11, that God has put eternity in our hearts. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to have eternity in our hearts? It means that we know that there's a purpose behind what God is doing in the times of our lives, but at the same time, we don't know what that purpose is. We can't see the bigger picture. We can't see the whole tapestry as God does. We see only a portion of it and very dimly. And it confuses us. And frankly, it frustrates us. And you see, that's why we don't fear the Lord. We don't fear the Lord because we don't trust Him. And we don't trust Him because He has chosen to not show us how all the painful, difficult, excruciating times of our lives fit into the big picture. You see, we're like the little kid who's angry and goes off into a fit because his parents, because he can't understand how his parents' love for him is made known through discipline. The wise thing for the child to do would be to trust his parents who have the big picture in mind, while the young child can only see a part of the picture. And I hope you see, that's you and me. That's how we interact with God. We're like the kid and God is like our perfect parent. And you know what the result is from our lack of trust in God? Instead of trusting Him, we seek to grab control of the times of our lives. We try to control them. And here's how we do it. Through bitterness and distrust, we think the worst of everyone around us so that we can protect ourselves from be, ever being hurt like that again. Through flattery, we seek to lull people into our confidence so that we can manipulate them to our advantage. Through our religious duties, we seek to put God in our debt so that he'll owe us a favor that we can then cash in on later when we need it. And through our anxiety and worry, we seek to put ourselves on the alert and protect ourselves from all of the potential sufferings that are around us. Through lack of generosity, we seek to establish security for ourselves in money and possessions. And through fits of anger, we seek to control others into fearing us so that they won't control, uh, confront us in our sin. So do you see why we do all these sins? Why we sin in all these ways? We do these things and sin because we don't trust the God who is sovereign. We don't trust him. And because we don't trust him, we don't fear him. So we've seen that we should fear the Lord because he's sovereign over all the times of our lives, but we don't fear the Lord because we don't trust him. And lastly, let's see how we arrive at the fear of the Lord. How we arrive at the fear of the Lord. Look at the first half of verse 11 and then verses uh, four, uh, 13 through 15, well, actually 12 through 15 with me. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks out what has been driven away. And I skipped uh, the first half of verse 11, he has made everything 
beautiful in its time. Now, let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't God just send Jesus to come and save us and make all things new right after the fall happened? Why didn't he do that? We know that he promised that the Messiah would come, but why didn't Jesus just show up on the scene right after the fall happened, die on the cross, rise from the dead, make all things new, end of story? Am I the only one that asked that question? I mean, why did God have to wait so long? Why did we have to endure the flood and the sins of Abraham and Moses and the Israelites and all the sacrifices and wars and sickness and death and famines and captivity and the judges and all the bad kings and the kingdom dividing and even worse, the exile and then 400 years of silence? Why? Why did God wait so long? If he's really sovereign over all the times of our lives, then why didn't he make the time of Jesus come sooner? And you know what the Bible says? You know how the Bible answers that? Because the fullness of time hadn't come yet. But then something incredible happens. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, the amazing thing is that Jesus, the one who was before time, who created time, entered into time at the fullness of time. And he came and he lived all of his life from beginning to end perfectly fearing the Lord. You see, fearing the Lord isn't just a good idea. It's not something that you can decide to do if you want to seek to make your life better. No, God demands it from you. We owe it to him. He alone is worthy of our fear. And yet we fail to fear him, don't we? And if we're honest Sometimes we just downright refuse to fear him. We don't just fail. We refuse to fear him. But you know what? Jesus didn't fail. Jesus didn't refuse. He perfectly feared God in all of his life. And you know why he came to do that? For you and for me. But I want you to hear this. You know what we did to Jesus in return? We killed Jesus for coming at the fullness of time. And you may say, no, we didn't. That was the Jews. That was the Romans. That was not us. No, we as humanity killed Jesus. And why did we kill him? Because we didn't trust God. We didn't fear God. We, and so we wanted to control the times. We tried to grab control. And so we beat to a bloody pulp, the creator of the universe. And we put a crown of thorns on the head of the king of kings. And we stripped naked the one who daily clothes us. And we drove nails into the hands of our sustainer. And we mocked the giver of all speech. And on that cross, we put to death our only hope of reconciliation and redemption and love. 
But you know what the incredible truth is? We couldn't best the sovereign Lord. We couldn't best him. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And the astounding irony is that in our killing Jesus, God was actually accomplishing our redemption. In our crushing Jesus, God was actually crushing Jesus in our place. You see, the Lord is even sovereign over the death of his own son. And he did it to redeem us. And you see, it's only as we gaze and put our faith and trust in this incredible Savior who lived perfectly fearing God, that we then become those who fear the Lord ourselves. And it's only as we look in wonder and behold with shock and awe our crucified Lord who died to pay the penalty for all our sin in not trusting God, that we then become those who trust the Lord ourselves. You see, it's only as we rejoice in all that Jesus has done for us in the gospel that our hearts will then be able to sing with the old hymn writer, Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fear, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. No earthly father loves like thee, no mother half so mild bears and forbears as thou hast done with me, thy sinful child. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, the endless wisdom, boundless power, and glorious purity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, it overwhelms us that we are able to approach You and call You our Abba, our Father. Because we know, Father, that when You created us, we rebelled against You. We didn't trust You. We didn't fear You. We wanted to take Your place we wanted to take control of the times. We wanted to overthrow your rule and reign and set ourselves up as God. And Father, we know that because we've done that, we've incurred an infinite debt that we could never pay you. And then we see, Father, that in the fullness of time, because of your love for us, as a perfect, loving, heavenly, holy, righteous, just, heavenly Father, you sent your Son to come at the fullness of time, to become a man and subject himself to the law, to be born of a woman, to live a life that perfectly feared you, the life that we owed you, he lived perfectly in our place. And then out of obedience and perfect fear of you, he went to that cross and he paid the penalty for all the ways in which we have failed to fear you and trust you. And then he rose from the dead and ascended to your right hand. And because we are united to him by grace through faith, his perfect track record of fearing you is now given to us. And we know that all of our sins have been forgiven and removed. Our imperfect track record of fearing you has been taken away and was cast on him on the cross. 
so that, Father, we now have this relationship with you in which we can trust you because if you gave us your Son, how will you not also give us all good things? And, Father, we can now be those who walk in the fear of the Lord because we know that the fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain and that life-giving fountain is that fountain filled with blood that came from your Son's side to wash our sins away and to justify us before you. So come and make us a people that trust you. Live knowing that you are doing all things for our good and for your glory. And we pray that you would take your word and make it effectual in our hearts and lives. We ask this in the name of your glorious Son, our brother and co-heir, Jesus Christ. Amen.